Welcome to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their specialty, and we focus on career questions such as what their professional life is like and how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. If you haven't already, we suggest that you first listen to the main Medical Murmurs podcast, featuring the same guest, before you listen to this one. So one thing that strikes me is you're an MD-PhD, and yet you're doing a very practical, there's a pra- very practical side to your specialty. You described it. It's working with your hands, uh, challenging, conquering a, a technical and, and hands-on skill. Is that Was that a shift for you? It was. Um, so up to about the moment I got my last job, I was all in. I was going to be a physician scientist. I was going to have a lab, postdocs, the works, apply for grants, etc. Then I had some changes in my personal life, which I'm not going to discuss, but uh, um, I did not see myself pursuing that type of lifestyle, mostly because lots of my friends who are really into science, really into pursuing this goal of what the MD-PhD program, you know, trains us to do is become physician scientist. It's a very demanding kind of lifestyle. You know, a lot of them are in the lab late at night, writing grants on the weekends, traveling a lot. I have a friend right now who's in the last month, he's been to Israel, Spain, and the Netherlands all in one month. And I did not see myself doing that, uh, even for travel reasons alone, you know? Um, and, uh, so I decided to kind of give that up and pursue more of a clinical career. And thankfully, I was lucky enough to actually join a group where there were two other MGPhD graduates who are in, you know, in clinical medicine. So we had kind of have a unique practice here in New Hampshire where three out of the four docs actually are MGPhD trained. Are you guys the brainiest GI practice on the block? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it makes us unique. And I think the way we approach medicine, um, that train, the PhD training really is um, something. You know, it makes you think about every little thing you do very differently. Tell me how. Well, you, you know, you approach it more with a kind of a scientific rigor. Like, you know, even the arguments I have with my wife are very different <laughs> because of the PhD training, I think, at least. Um but well, no. Now, I, now I have to understand that. I mean, how does an argument with your wife go differently because <laughs> of your PhD? Well, you you try to see the other side. You you know, you always anytime you do an experiment, you always think like, why is this true? And but also, why this is not true? So every time you bring up a point, you have to automatically see the other side before you even speak. So it has to be refutable. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me? about a typical day when you're clinical? So um, what I do is I have one day of clinic, uh, which I see anywhere from 12 to 20 patients. Um, And the rest of the week is actually spent in the endoscopy suite um, doing procedures. And I do about 10 to 12 procedures a day. Uh, I start my days, usually I come in to work around seven o'clock and I do some pre-charting for about an hour before going to endoscopy suite around eight and uh, I work with wonderful crew of people at the hospital. There is a nurse in the room, there's a CRNA in the room and, um, and a tech 
So it's a kind of a busy environment. It's not just me in the room. And obviously the patient is there as well. Um, and a CRNA, you're talking about a, a, a nurse practitioner, anesthetist, just for the non-doctors out there. Yes, um, person actually administering anesthesia, making sure that the patient is actually comfortable. And they're, they're key. Um, I do at least maybe one procedure a week with a patient being completely awake, and I really like doing those because you get to interact with the patient and it's like really tests your skills. Uh, United States is unique in uh, us actually having all procedures with anesthesia, uh, whereas places like China and uh, some other parts of the world where all the colonoscopies are done awake. <laughs> some people don't like that, but some people are totally fine with it. Um, yeah, so I spend uh, most of the day doing endoscopies and the rest of the afternoon I spend writing notes uh, communicating with primary care doctors and writing uh, letters to patients. And then during clinic day, um, it's just a typical clinic day where I see patients anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes a visit, addressing anything from inflammatory bowel disease, liver disease. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the, what do you consider the highs and lows of your working life? The highs are probably just meeting with the patients, you know. Um, when I, you know, it's funny enough, when I was in my science, science phase of my training, I dreaded seeing patients. I was very afraid of going into the room with a patient because I was very unsure of myself. Uh, but these days, you know, that's probably the biggest joy I get just interacting with patients, finding about their lives and finding how we can figure out a way of addressing exactly why they're there to get their symptoms better, to get their lives better, whatever it is they're there for try to fix it and address it. Um, so that's the high, just just interacting with human beings as another human being. Um, the lows are probably just dealing with uh, insurance, which is, I think, a lot of docs kind of find that to be a low. Um, you know, because a lot of medications that we prescribe for things like inflammatory bowel disease are either not covered or come with high premiums. Often the procedures themselves are not covered by insurance or come with a very high deductible. So dealing with insurance is probably the biggest challenge. Right now, because the phone calls are difficult or just they take a lot of your time? What, what is it about it? It's, I, just, I think it's just frustrating uh, to know that the patient tells me, like, I understand this is the treatment I need, but sorry, I can't afford it. You know, Because you know that even for simple things sometimes, even for, you know, heartburn reflux, you prescribe a short course of um, protein pump inhibitors, things like omeprazole, Nexium. And many times insurance doesn't even cover that anymore, which is even more frustrating, you know? Although there's now uh, vouchers available from companies, and one of them being GoodRx. Um, GoodRx is a great resource. Yeah, I've really uh, been recommending that to patients. You know, there was a good discovery a few years back, which is, you know, it really helps a lot. I wish we didn't have to even resort to that, you know, but, um, and oftentimes, you know, you have to be on the phone with prior auth and, uh, calling insurance companies, trying to request a medication just to get the runaround, you know, you try to get, a, and these medications, you know, understandably they are expensive. A medication like Humira or Remicade for inflammatory bowel disease is expensive and oftentimes it doesn't work and you have to go to a, another medication and insurance doesn't want to pay for it. Or they say, oh, try this, try that. And it's very frustrating dealing with them on the phone. And uh, 
you know, faxing notes over and over and over until you get things through. I mean, we kind of, uh, medical school is, uh, at, at being a physician, you know, at least in residency, we train to kind of work around the system and it really helps, <laughs> you know, long-term in your career. But it's just frustrating that we have to come up with, you know, kind of a roundabout ways of doing things to help our patients get what they need. Yeah. So that's kind of the lows. The high, uh, as, yeah, uh, other lows. Um, you know, I really enjoy my job. You know, I really thought I wouldn't, but I really do. Um, and the, the other low, what was a low, but really is a high now, you know, dealing with electronic medical records. The um, electronic health records, you know, we use Epic at our uh, hospital, and uh, there's a lot of frustrations with it. Um, and I used to be really, really angry at Epic, but I don't think I am anymore. Uh, partly because we probably have a good um, IT system in place where if there's issues, I can, you know, reach out to them and fix things. And I think a lot of docs actually struggle with that because they are taught to work around the system and instead of with the system. And a lot of docs, you know, hesitate about trying to fix problems with their electronic health record, or maybe there are, you know, there are barriers for them to do so. But just going back to even my medical school, where a lot of hospitals didn't have the EHR, and just remembering back to what kind of things we had to do before we had EHR, you know, makes you a lot less frustrated with it. <laughs> There's definitely pros and cons. I mean, um, you know, I, I did some time, you know, at, at Jacoby and, you know, I remember I used to have a tiny little box that I would hand write an H and P in and it was pretty straightforward. Um, but on the other hand, retrieving someone's full history. Um, yeah, we didn't have access to that. We, we obviously were going to miss things. Yeah, absolutely. So, Looking back, what do you think are the greatest changes to your specialty over your time in medicine? And then also looking forward, where do you think we're going to see the greatest changes going forward? Um, for gastroenterology, I think the greatest changes are just the improvement in technology. I think the quality of, of the endoscopes has dramatically improved even, you know, I haven't been in medicine that long. I graduated medical school in 2010. I started in 2002, but <laughs> I spent a while there. But even, you know, in, in this short time, the quality of the endoscope has improved dramatically, you know, because, because of the computers. And uh, I think one of the biggest things coming is AI and uh, computers helping us find polyps more efficiently. And uh, the more polyps are removed, the more cancer we prevent, hopefully. So I think that's the biggest thing coming in the future. Other things, uh, I think medications really changed the trajectory of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, which was a you know, really, really challenging disease to treat because the only option we had, you know, even 15 years ago was steroids, which had a lot of side effects. And the other option was surgery, which is often debilitating. And um, multiple medications coming out these days really spare patients surgery or lifelong steroids and uh, a lot of patients do well many still don't do well but a lot of patients their lives have dramatically changed because of the all the advances we have in medicine so even though during their life on patent 
uh, a drug like Remicade is expensive, um, it has helped a great number of patients live their life differently. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And now that things like Humira and Remicade are off patent, you have all sorts of biosimilars coming out, which make it slightly challenging <laughs> to treat patients just because of insurance issues again, but having more options is always welcome. So in your mind, what kind of person does well choosing gastroenterology as a specialty and who might not be so suited to it? So if you like video games, funny enough, you might be considering a career in gastroenterology because doing a colonoscopy or an upper endoscopy is very similar to, to, a, to a video game. Um, you know, it's just going through this very long tunnel and navigating up and down. And you have to have very good uh, hand-eye coordination to do that. Um, and many gastroenterologists I know are either former gamers or active gamers still, which is very strange. I think a lot of surgeons play video games as well. But what makes um, gastroenterology different from surgeons, we're not surgeons, um, is that um, our technical skills are limited to certain procedures? We don't do that much. What's uh, as a you know compared to surgeons, uh, and uh, I think we spent a lot more time in the office. So it's kind of a combination of primary care and surgery combined into a neat little package. You know, if you want to do something in between, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I think gastroenterology is a good fit. I can see that because also with a surgeon, your hand is directly on the body part that you are attempting to fix, whereas you are using, in a sense, a kind of a remote control. Yes. Right? The, the site of interest, which is the end of the endoscope, is not the part you have your hand on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You're basically, it's action at a distance. So could you actually walk us through? Uh, and explain for people who are not doctors what an endoscope is and walk me through what it's like to do one. Uh, particularly, let's just say you've got someone who's got a, a few dangerous looking polyps and you know what the procedure would look like. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll start with the what the endoscope is. Basically, endoscope is a, is a camera on a very, very long noodle, which is about three to four feet long. And it's a, it's a relatively thin, it's maybe, um, you know, um, two to two centimeters um, uh, in diameter um, noodle, which has very um, rigid cables inside of it, which are controlled with little dials at the end of the device where you, and that's the part you hold in the hand, which is basically a handle with two dials. You can rotate the dial up, down, left, and right. And um, the scope itself is flexible enough that you basically on insertion have to navigate it through the colon and uh, I think the most challenging aspects of the colonoscopy is to actually get a feel for it. And it takes about 200 to 400 colonoscopies until you actually kind of get it. And kind of like, ah, I understand what I'm doing now. Um, in terms of, you know, controlling the scope. And one of the most famous gastroenterologists said the, uh, the insertion is all about pulling back. <laughs> so you kind of have to have a very good feel about how the very tip of the scope is moving in relation to where you're holding it, which is about two feet away from the actual tip of the uh, device. And um, a lot of it has to do with patient comfort, minimizing basically the cramping that the endoscope can provide uh, during the procedure 
and uh, maximizing the ability of you to actually reach the beginning of the colon, which is called the cecum, which is uh, where the small bowel empties into the colon. Um, and during the colonoscopy, obviously, we only look at the large bowel. And um, the job of the gastroenterologist during a screening colonoscopy is to examine all the walls of the colon, basically looking for polyps, which is what we think causes colon cancer. You know, polyps are left in place, takes them about five to 10 years to become cancer. So if we remove them, hopefully we prevent cancer. And if you could describe what a polyp actually is. So polyp is a, is a little growth, sort of like a mole on the skin, but on the skin of the colon. That's how I typically describe it. And it's, uh, you know, they have different shapes. Some polyps are completely flat and it's basically abnormal growth where the tissue, the lining of the colon decides to grow out of proportion to the, uh, in terms of the rate of, and the kind of cells it generates different from the rest of the lining of the colon. And eventually it leads to what's known as dysplasia, which is basically an abnormal growth, which can, it's one of the steps on becoming cancer. And, um, Finding those sometimes is challenging if they're flat. If it's a if it's a raised kind of a little bump, uh, it's easy to find. But it's a, if it's a flat polyp, they're they're harder to find. That that we can use to find them, including changing the uh, wavelength of the light that we shine on the colon, called narrowband imaging. Basically, we only shine um, uh, certain wavelengths of light and change the way the polyp looks. Um, there's certain different techniques of doing the colonoscopy itself. One is called water immersion, basically when you don't use any air, because if you don't have any stool in your colon, the colon is actually collapsed. It's like a large accordion that had all the air sucked out of it. Um, and it, the, all the walls are collapsed. But if you want to examine all the walls, you have to basically stretch them out so you can actually have an ability to examine them to look for those polyps. And uh, there are many techniques we have to remove those polyps, including you know tiny pinch forceps that we insert through the working channel of the endoscope into towards the polyp so we can pinch away the little polyp on we have these little snares old you know kind of lassos that we which are made out of a uh, very stiff wire that we put around the polyp to kind of snare it away and uh, we, sometimes we use heat um, basically you know electric cautery to remove the tissue from the colon and uh, we have all sorts of techniques to prevent bleeding including injections thermal therapy and these tiny tiny clips that we can put uh on the area where the polyp was gone basically create create a little ulcer in the uh, lining of the colon and you have to close it down to prevent bleeding or perforation which is probably the worst thing to happen during colonoscopy is a perforation basically make a hole in the wall of the colon and let the colon contents spill into your abdominal cavity thankfully that doesn't happen very often how often does it happen um so the latest a uh, summary of all the available evidence is it's about five out of 10,000 procedures and things like inflammatory bowel disease, uh, heavy use of steroids and many other diseases can kind of increase that risk. But an average healthy person having a colonoscopy for screening, the rates of perforations are much lower than that. So well less than a 1%. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's a relatively safe procedure. Now, all the things with medicine... Um, so unlike a CAT scan where we, you know, kind of leave a patient comes in with abdominal pain and you get a CAT scan, you find a lot of other things than other than what you're looking for, which require follow-up. Whereas colonoscopy, you only look for polyps or any kind of abnormalities in the cone itself and nowhere else. So all the screening tests we have, 
this one is actually not only a screening test, it's also, uh, you know, you actually remove the polyps, you're not just finding them. So you actually, it's a preventative treatment at the same time. And just for the non-medical listeners, we've been describing a colonoscopy or a lower GI endoscopy um, going in the bottom end of the digestive tract. And of course, there's also upper GI endoscopy, which looks at the esophagus, the stomach, the beginning of the small bowel. Yeah. And uh, just from the perspective of the, of the patient, the worst part of the colonoscopy is actually not the procedure itself, is is the preparation for it. We actually have to empty your colon by drinking large amounts of liquids uh, with laxatives in them. Um, so that's the dreaded part of the colonoscopy. <clears throat> but thankfully, it's over before uh, you meet the doctor. And uh, after you're actually in the procedure suite, the procedure itself takes about 10 to 15 minutes. It's not a long procedure. And uh, because we use um, sedation, most people actually either not feel anything, don't remember feeling anything, and they wake up and many patients tell me, when are we getting started? By the time the procedure is over. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could talk about, oh, and you know what? You didn't tell me uh, who might be poorly suited to uh, gastroenterology. Oh, so if you're really bad with your hands and uh, you probably shouldn't <laughs> go into gastroenterology. <laughs> um, the other part of it is that internal medicine is is essential to gastroenterology. Understanding how the rest of the body works is essential to gastroenterology. And, and it's part of the training. Actually, you have to go through the internal medicine residency before you go to, for a fellowship in gastroenterology. It's a subspecialty of internal medicine. So if you don't like dealing with patients and seeing patients on a daily basis, gastroenterology is not for you. There's plenty of specialties out there where you don't have to deal directly with the patient. You probably should choose that one. You know, And if someone has significant liver disease, there isn't another organ system almost that I can think of that isn't affected by it. Yeah, absolutely. So liver liver is a, is a very important organ, yeah. And uh, if, if you really like the liver, there's even a fellowship in hepatology that you can do, which is you will only see liver patients, and some people choose to do that. Um, I'd like to have a much more varied practice. So I do see liver patients, but I like to see other patients as well. But if liver is your game, there's plenty of work for specialists just seeing liver patients. As I was saying, if someone's got severe liver disease, I mean, it's going to affect their kidneys. It's going to affect their heart. It's going to affect their blood. It's going to affect um, yeah, the brain. brain and everything. Yeah. So I, I guess that goes to what you were saying about you have to be strong, uh, not just be focused on the, the gastrointestinal uh, uh, tract and organs. Right. You have to know how to manage uh, diuretics, which are, you know, um, usually a, a domain of nephrologists. You have to know how to manage cardiovascular drugs. You have to know how to manage nutrition. You have to know how to manage um, um, even pain medicine. Uh, you know, it, you can't really prescribe them uh, at, you know, in the same manner you would do with someone else who doesn't have liver disease. Every medication you prescribe or other specialists prescribed, or even primary care docs prescribed, you'll have to make a recommendation based on the fact that this patient has liver disease. What would you say is the best way to get into gastroenterology? Best way to do uh, to get into gastroenterology is to probably do a rotation in uh, medical school just to see if you are actually the right fit for it, and if the specialty is the right fit for you. Uh, you're probably not going to touch a, an endoscope until you're a fellow. <laughs> Sorry to say that. Um, and it's, I think it's one of the most um, 
kind of uh, biggest deficiencies in terms of getting people into gastroenterology because you can't really do the actual procedure that you will be doing for most of your day. Um, but just watching them sometimes is also very interesting, you know, because as I mentioned, there's many different ways you can remove a polyp. There's many different ways um, you can um, stop a bleed. And um, so the other thing, uh, you know, in terms of becoming a gastroenterologist, uh, uh, just to add to what you're asking, uh, who is it suited for? You have to not be afraid of very some some hair raising cases where people are, you know, uh, very sick. You know, you can't shy away from that. You know. So, if someone is determined that they want to do gastroenterology, um, they're going to do internal medicine first. So, some of this discussion is not focused on people at the MS two and three level. It's really focused on people um, who are uh, PGY ones and twos, um, in internal medicine, I would imagine, right? Because that's the point where they're now truly committing, um, to, to do what they need to do to get into the specialty. Is that correct? That's a good point. Because if you are doing internal medicine with the hopes of doing gastroenterology or any other subspecialty, you can always change your mind before you apply for a fellowship. So residency is also key, uh, because, you know, even as an intern, you can ask your resident to give you patients who have GI complaints who have GI diseases to see if that's what you're really interested in. And um, I think any hospital, any residency program um, will give you enough exposure to patients with uh, liver disease, ulcers, colon cancer, nausea, vomiting, you name it. There's, you know, 20, 30% of patients in the hospital will have some sort of a GI complaint at some point. And so what should um, a, a, an internal medicine resident do to maximize their chance of getting into the specialty of gastroenterology? I think, unfortunately, there are certain things you will probably be asked to do. And I think one, research is one of them. So getting involved in research, some sort of a research project, no matter how small, goes a long way uh, these days uh, because it's a, somewhat of a competitive specialty. And uh, research is, is pretty much a requirement, you know, I've seen many fellows these days who try to apply without research and I just, uh, it just doesn't work. You know, it's a, I, I don't know if that's a good thing. I think it's actually not a, not a great thing because not everybody's suited for research and forcing people to do research is not a good thing. But if you really want to do gastroenterology, you have to find uh, some sort of a research project, which also helps you find a mentor, you know, and I think that's also key in any field, finding a mentor in the field to try to figure out and navigate the pathway. Mm -hmm. What do you think makes a difference in terms of the actual application process beyond research? Beyond research, I think um, some sort of a demonstration that you have good skills uh, in terms of uh, not only technical skills, but also interacting with patients. So doing well in residency helps. Uh, unfortunately, uh, board scores are taken into account. Hopefully, there won't be as much in the future. But for now, I think good board scores matter. And um, But I think it's 80% research, research, research. So once you're into training in gastroenterology and you're starting to think about how best to develop a career, what, what should you do to develop a career in order to achieve success and satisfaction long-term in the specialty? I, th I think it actually starts before. It actually starts right when you're picking what kind of fellowship program you want to go into because there are some differences in terms of 
how you're trained. Some, and I think the vast majority of the gastroenterology fellowships are clinically heavy and there's no research at all. So if you envision a career in academia and doing some sort of research project at some point in the future, you probably want to consider doing a fellowship where there is some research component to it. But if you think you're just going to go into private practice or hospital-employed gastroenterology um, without any research component, I think you should pick a fellowship where clinical training is key in their um, training. Um, because at the end of the day, you will be doing lots of procedures and seeing lots of patients. So by the end of your fellowship, you want to make sure that you're top-notch and you're, you know what, exactly what you're doing. So uh, during the training, I think you just do as many cases as you can, see as many patients as you can, you know, read as much as you can as well. You know, it's, it's a busy time, um, but I don't know that people always remember that it's limited and it's the last time in which you get that kind of active feedback on every case. Uh, it's a real, you know, we don't have active coaching the rest of our careers. Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, my first year of fellowship was probably the busiest one of my life. I probably was up more hours than I ever was and uh, staying late in the hospital more than even in residency. But I really remember that time very fondly. And, you know, I, I really miss that excitement of seeing new cases, excitement of trying to fix something and actually fixing things, you know, um, and um, having great mentors, having great attendings to work with is also key. And I, I remember all of them, you know. You know, we were talking before about things that had changed in gastroenterology now in terms of what comes into the ER. It just seems like we don't have as many of those people coming in who are coming in with deadly bleeds. I, I, I agree with you. I think um, I think you mentioned the proton pump inhibitors. I think they really revolutionized what we do in gastroenterology, just in terms of ulcer care. Um, yeah, we don't, I agree with you. There's less, uh, these, uh, massive GI bleeds from, um, from peptic ulcer disease these days compared to 20, 30 years ago. Um, yeah, the, the biggest problem right now with, uh, proton pump inhibitors is, I think it's overuse, uh, because these days a patient has a little bit of symptoms of, uh, heartburn reflux and, and they put them on, uh, lifelong treatment with proton pump inhibitors, which I think why there's so much uh, kind of pushback uh, and with all these papers coming out that proton pump inhibitors, you know, cause every disease known to man, <laughs> anything from Alzheimer's to cardiac disease to kidney disease, pneumonias, you name it, there's an association with them, which is a little bit alarming to me because <clears throat> scaring patients is never a good idea, especially the medicines that we know work. We've had proton pump inhibitors now for you know, almost 40 years, and they're, they're very safe compared to all the other things we do in medicine. And they are, as you mentioned, could be life-changing because, you know, if somebody has a small ulcer that's treated with proton pump inhibitor, does not lead to this torrential blood um, uh, bath that you've kind of described. Uh, that's, that's amazing, you know? It used to be a part of our life. I mean, we would, you would routinely, if you look at a month in our line of work, you would get someone having a terrible bleed. And now you can get through a year and not see a case like that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I don't. I see a fair number of these patients, but I'm kind of, uh, you know, in the field. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, do you think the tips has also affected it? 
I think so, yeah. So so there's a lot more push to do tips up front for people with esophageal varices because there's evidence uh, to support that kind of uh, approach where, you know, just the very case I described earlier where a patient had multiple attempts for, for esophageal variceal banding. And if he had tips, you know, a few admissions ago, he, he could have lived, you know, potentially. You know, I don't know. He probably would have continued drinking, you know, but at least in terms of procedures, this could have been... Um, potentially save his life. And uh, yeah, there's a lot more push to do procedures like TIPS where the um, uh, shunt is inserted into the liver to kind of bypass the flow of blood um, through the liver rather than through the varices. So the risk of esophageal varices goes down dramatically. Yeah, I think that really helped. And the protein pump inhibitors, yeah, both things really changed. Even what kind of things we do procedurally yeah, for even for peptic ulcers, when the patient comes in and, you know, if you put them on a, a drip of a protein pump inhibitor for a little while, the, th the, amount, the amount of intervention we actually are, are required to do for, for an ulcer goes down. We use less clips. We use less thermal therapy. Many times a patient comes in with a bleed. They've been a protein pump inhibitor. Uh, for Even for 12 hours before endoscopy, you go in, you see a clean-based ulcer. You do nothing. And they go home a lot sooner. Dr. Dimitri Kedrin. Thank you so much for appearing on Medical Murmurs. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. This is Medical Murmurs. You've been listening to my interview with Dr. Dimitri Kadrin. He's a gastroenterologist who practices in New Hampshire. He's also the creator and host of a podcast called GI Pearls, where he reviews current scientific literature in gastroenterology. This is Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. This podcast was focused on career issues of particular interest to medical students and prospective medical students. We suggest you also listen to the main Medical Murmurs episode featuring the same guests discussing a wider range of issues and sharing stories for a more general audience. Check it out.